Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. It's been a little bit over two weeks since a lone gunman stormed an elementary school in Ovalde, Texas. The brutal attack left 19 students and two teachers dead, and it's rekindled a national debate over school safety and gun control. The horrific events in Uvalde struck close to home for Mike Munger. He's the manager of Idaho's school safety and security program. And this program, an offshoot of the State Board of Education, is charged with looking at school safety in Idaho, looking at safety protocols in place on school campuses across the state. I had a chance to sit down and talk to Munger this week. We talked about Uvalde. We talked about his program's review of the Rigby Middle School, which was the scene of a school shooting in May 2021, which left three people wounded. And we talked about the inflection point that we're in right now in terms of the debate over school safety. Here's our conversation. It does run a little bit longer than in our typical conversation, but I think we touch on some really important topics. So I hope you'll bear with us for the next half hour. Here's my conversation with Mike Munger. Well, Mike, thank you for joining us this week for the podcast. I thought I would begin, just for our listeners, just start us off really quickly with an explainer about the Office of School Safety and Security, your role, your responsibilities. Very good. Uh, well, thanks for having having me on, Kevin. I appreciate it. The office is an exciting story. I, I like to talk about it, and I'll probably talk about it for way too long. But it's one of those things that I really think is one of the success stories when we talk about how does the state of Idaho support education when it comes to a specific kind of narrowly understood subject matter area? Not everybody goes to school to spend all of their time looking at safety and security specific to the educational mm-hmm. realm. So the, I think probably the biggest thing that folks can walk away with when they think of what our office does is we support schools, districts, school stakeholders as they work to improve their own safety and security profile. So we're very much a support-oriented agency in being able to reach out, provide subject matter expertise, evaluate effective programs, uh, conduct vulnerability assessments on behalf of schools. And when I say schools, it's all education institutions publicly funded throughout the state. Most of our effort goes towards the K-12 realm because that's Uh kind of where the center of mass is. Uh, But that's, that's really one of the things I'm excited about is there's not a lot of non-regulatory, but but support-oriented agencies, um, nationally even. We, we hear a lot of other states reach out and say, hey, why does Idaho do it this way? And so it's a, it's a good story to be able to tell that we don't enter into the conversation thinking that anybody wants to have an unsafe school. Right. What they lack sometimes is the ability to get from where they are to where they need to be, and that's what we are able to provide. I think that backdrop is really important as an introduction because we're sitting here, we're 15 days removed from the events in Uvalde, Texas, and I wanted to start with getting a sense of just how you process that over the past 15 days. I mean, you're processing it as we all are as, as, as human beings watching the, the footage and seeing the reports, but you're also processing it as somebody who deals with these issues on a daily basis. So walk us through that mindset. That's, a, that's an astute question. I think that's where we always have to enter into that conversation is to say we're people first and everybody involved in the entire education sphere has to take in that information on a personal level. But then one of the things that we do spend a lot of time and effort in is trying to understand the mechanics of what happened, whether it's a, a, a human system 
whether it's a safety, a physical security system, whether it's just the outplay of events. And so there's really kind of two tracks. One of them uh, from the personal side is it's a horrific story. And there's no other way to couch that. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an element where it's, in many cases, we're very quick to move to how can we solve this question and not mourn what is appropriate to mourn in these situations. Unfortunately, that kind of rush to solution sometimes leads us down uh, either wrongly understood or wrongly thought roads when it comes to how do we begin to work towards prevention, mitigation, Hopefully not response and recovery. We hope that the, the job's taken care of is in those other areas. But that's what I would say is kind of that next level is to be able to say, after viewing the tragedy, how do we make substantive steps that work in order to prevent it from happening again? And in this case, it feels not even that we're in a rush to solutions as much as we're in a national rush to who did what that led to this or, or put the circumstances in, in motion. Yeah, I, the, and that's unfortunately, that's been a pattern that we've seen very frequently in high profile events. And that's, that's one of the things that I think is important for us to remember is acts of school violence are low frequency but highly impactful right. events. So that, that's one thing for us to remember. And it's not to diminish anything that's happened, but they are, as we look at the, the whole scope of school safety and security, they are fairly rare events. Now, it's not to say that we shouldn't devote an appropriate amount of time, effort, and energy towards preventing and responding to those, but it really is important that we kind of take into account the entire scope of what goes on in schools. And it's not just active shooter response. There's a lot of other things that need to be incorporated into that. But your question's a good one in that the, the blame game is, an initial response a lot of times um, because I think it it gains headlines and gains attention. But the real question everybody has to grapple with is what do we do as a result of what we've learned here? And that's really kind of the educational model is to be able to say we're going to diagnose and then we'll treat. Like we need to understand what's happened and not just happened in a specific incident but, but what happens in, in acts of school violence generally understand that and then we can begin to look for what are the solutions that will actually work not just those that seem the best in terms of front of mind from your perspective two weeks into this what do you most want to know as somebody who works in this field mm -hmm. what are your biggest unanswered questions and, and maybe what is a takeaway from an event 1500 miles away that yeah could be applied that could be actionable in Idaho yeah, that's a great question. So the, the, my big outstanding questions are, they're always going to orient towards the pre-event. Were there indicators? What happened with those? Um, because that's been what we've seen, not just in this case, but generally speaking in many acts of mass violence is there are pre-attack behavioral indicators. Folks tend to walk down kind of a uh, at least an understandable path to violence moving from ideation to action mm -hmm. with some discernible, objectively observable behaviors as we move down that road. That's the, that's the rule rather than the exception. Um, what we always like to say is that people don't just snap, they decide. And those decision-making processes are observable in some way. So the big question is, when there are those observable behaviors, were they noticed? 
who noticed them? Did they have the ability to communicate that concern to people who could maybe take some kind of intervention action? If there was an intervention action that was taken, was it successful? Um, in this case, we know that it wasn't. And so all of those pre-event uh, questions, really mapping out what brings a person to the point where they're willing to believe this is their best path forward, that's a hard lesson and lots of variables associated with it. But those are the things that schools can really lean into in terms of being able to have effective measures to be able to address. You take that post-incident, the response component, and I think that's what's gaining the most attention right now is to be able to say who responded where, when, who was in different places. And, and that is a really important part for informing law enforcement response, which is informed by like school resource officer training. Um, that command staff component is a big question of how are decisions made in high pressure situations. I think that that's all fruitful ground as well, but specifically from the school element, the strengths that schools bring to that table are on the prevention side, not on the response side. And so we're looking at both of those because we kind of have our feet in both sides of the world. But that's really the questions that I would like to see fleshed out. And I, it's kind of an adage at this point within our office, but you don't really learn anything worth knowing in the first two weeks of an incident. The actual information that's actionable begins to come out later. Bringing up kind of the, the signals that seem to be you know, present leading up to the events uh, two weeks ago. That dovetails into the debate that we're seeing unfold on Capitol Hill right now about you know, waiting periods uh, for you know, anyone under the age of 21 uh, to acquire an assault weapon. I mean, how do you, how, where do you come down on something like that? Well, it's, it's a little bit um, of a tricky situation because the, 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 what I absolutely firmly believe is kind of the identification of those behavioral cues is where we need to be good. That's where schools have the ability to move the needle. Schools don't necessarily have the ability to change uh, gun purchasing laws sure. nationally. And so that's really where we tend to direct our efforts because I do think that that Schools are good at talking to kids. They're good at understanding a student's world. They're good at putting caring adults in a relationship with a student who needs support or needs instruction in terms of, of kind of those soft skills components. That's where the strength of schools lies. And it's in that community network where schools have the ability to really prevent and give students the tools that they need to be able to deal with loss and grievance. That's the other factor that we tend to see so much in these cases is we have a student who comes in and whether it's actual or perceived, they believe that they've been done wrong in some way. And, and a lot of times the language is around bullying or, or unfair treatment or interpersonal conflict. You know, that's, that's the individual's um, reasoning for being able to walk down this path to violence. But those are the very areas that schools have the ability to present different options to students in, to be able to say, hey, if you have an interpersonal conflict with someone, let's talk about some different ways that we can deal with that. Let's talk about maybe violence isn't the first choice. Let's try negotiation this time. Let's try walking away. Let's try interceding with an appropriate adult. So, so in terms of the, the question that you had specific to the, 
the gun component, if we wait until we have a situation where a person's willing to commit an act of violence with a gun in a school, we've waited too long. The better question is, what are schools able to do and how can they lean into their strengths? And, and that's where I would put that, is the, is the capacity building component, the relational building component, that supportive component for students. And it gets to the issue of mental health, which you know some critics are saying, hey, that's just being used as a front, it's being used as an excuse, a smokescreen to get away from the mm -hmm. guns issue. But mm -hmm. I, I think you know, most people would agree that there is there's a mental health issue here, too. Yeah, I, I think there is. I, I think it's important to say that mental health or mental illness isn't determinative in a lot of these cases. Um, in many cases, what we see, and, and, and part of this is driven by kind of current threat assessment research that's, that's happening in a variety of fronts. This isn't a school-specific question. This is happening at employers. This is happening at malls, as you well know. This is happening in a lot of different places. And so that the discipline that we're really looking to is behavioral threat assessment. But, but your question is a good one in that, that those mental health concerns are a piece of the puzzle. How are we able to get support to people who need it? And the other element, I think, is that capacity building question mm -hmm. of being able to give people the tools they need to deal with difficult situations in life. And, and it'll, I would be first to say, in a, in a school perspective, that that's the parent's responsibility. But that doesn't always happen. And so how can schools function in kind of a backstop capacity to be able to teach students that, let's talk about six different ways that you can deal with who goes first in line to the slide? Because that's an example of a small, low-level interpersonal conflict where schools can intercede in that situation and give students the tools they need to be able to say, oh, this is the tool I'm going to pick to deal with this particular personal grievance. And, and give them the tools that they need to deal with that at a low level in the elementary school, middle school. Because by the time you get to those older grades, folks have figured out how to deal with interpersonal conflict. They figured out how to deal with grievance and loss. And in many cases, those aren't appropriate ways to deal with those hard issues. And we know this isn't gonna be the last time that that, that student's gonna have to deal with difficult things in their life. So let's give them the tools now so that they have those for the rest of their life. And given what kids have gone through these past two years, what we've gone, all gone through these past two years, those issues of grievance and loss, a lot more widespread. Absolutely, absolutely. I think, um, you know, we, we have this picture of kind of, or caricatures probably is a better way to say it, of how the lockdown affected kids. Um, what I hear and what our team hears when we get to go out into the schools and actually talk with administrators, teachers, and students is they're seeing high levels of anxiety, higher. And, and I should say that was not a pandemic-specific finding that we continually hear when we go out is we'll sit down with a, a counselor at a school and they'll say, yeah, our kids are ex experiencing high levels of anxiety and depression. And, and that's anecdotal in a lot of ways, but I think it's also reflective of what we see as adults as well. Like we would look at kind of our friend group as well and, and realize, wow, some folks are having a really hard time right now. How can we help them um, kind of through that? And that, that built-in community component that happens at every school is really one of those strong tools that can be used in that respect. Is, is, is our school environment a situation where folks feel accepted, welcomed, part of the group, you know, that they are, have some kind of group identity of, uh, over and above themselves? 
all of those things are really strong tools. We've said for a long time that schools are the heart of the community. Mm -hmm. And I think everywhere we go, whether that's in a 2,500 student high school or an eight student K-12 system, that really is true. They're a microcosm of what's going on in the community, but they're also really a support system for the communities generally. So being tied to any kind of resourcing that's available in the community becomes really important as well. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up community because that's where I wanted to go next because, you know, last fall you were on Idaho Reports, this podcast, our friends at Idaho Reports talked to you about Rigby. Mm -hmm. And you talked at length about the importance of the community there mm -hmm. and the community response to, you know, thank goodness, an event that was not as catastrophic mm -hmm. as Uvalde, but still a very traumatic community event. The community response was very strong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Elaborate on that. I mean, the, <laughs> yeah. the importance of that response. Uh, yeah, that's. It's easy for us, I think, sometimes to think of schools as kind of this island um, that's adrift from all of the other concerns that are going on in the community. And it's e and when I say it's easy for us to think of them that way, it's easy for us kind of outside that individual classroom or outside that principal's office to think of them that way. But when you put yourself in the mindset of the individual who's working in that school every day, there's no differentiation between school and community for all intents and purposes. Though They will, I think, for as long as I'm around, will continue to be the gathering point for communities. And so it becomes a really natural point and with clear understanding of what the different roles are within the community, community providers are not school district officials. School district officials are not mental health providers per se. Um, you know, nobody's replacing the, the role of the parent. All of those, all of that choreography that needs to take place to be able to get normal operational support to students in terms of kind of the day-to-day -day issues that students deal with and then transitioning into more kind of exceptional levels of care or support, that that logistical component is really, really important. And it doesn't happen by accident. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a situation where you can just exchange business cards and in front of a, an emergency situation with the school and everything rolls smoothly. Those are pre-existing relationships of school staff knowing who to call within the community, knowing who to call in terms of state partners, and those individuals knowing the players that are working in their individual community because, I mean, let's face it, resourcing is different across the state. I'm not saying it's good, bad, or indifferent, but it is very different. The players are different in eastern Idaho and north Idaho and southwest Idaho. So having those connections within the community, whether it's formal or informal, um, in the smaller rural and frontier communities, it tends to be more informal. Um, but in the, the larger built-up communities, we need to have those structures of support that are available so that if I'm a, a counselor and I'm sitting across the table from a student who's experiencing anxiety, and the more we talk, the more I realize it's because the anxiety for their, from their food insecurity or their, tra their need for transportation assistance is causing them to miss their homework assignments, which is causing them to be anxious and act out in class. All of a sudden, sometimes it can be as simple as there's no electricity on at the house and how can I connect this family with the appropriate levels of support within the community for electricity support? And get the lights turned back on. So the alarm clock rings at the right time. So the students at the bus stop at the right time. So that they can get to school. 
you know, sometimes it's as simple as that. Right. And it's just a matter in many cases of knowing who to call within the community. And you want that sense of community to respond to any number of issues, not just the, the most catastrophic. And, and you need that sense of structure in place before something of this magnitude occurs. And what you can't I would, build it after the fact. Yeah, absolutely. And what I would say is the, building proficiency with the small things allows you to be proficient in the big things. So me knowing the right people to call for transportation assistance or knowing you know, which probation and parole officer to call to see if an individual is bonded out of jail or not, you know, all of those things in the normal day-to-day -day life of a school help that school to function more smoothly in the exceptional events. I was struck too in, in the Rigby shooting and the investigation afterwards, it can be really small structural issues that could have a huge impact potentially. I mean, Rigby, it was a PA system that, you know, folks in the portable couldn't hear. And, you know, again, thank goodness it didn't lead down the road to something, you know, catastrophic. But those are things you probably notice in schools, you know, every time you go into a school, these small things that could be big. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because um, that's one of the things that when we talk with stakeholders within a school, particularly um, superintendents and school boards following our vulnerability assessment, there are a lot of elements where it just becomes easy to say, oh yeah, you know, that PA speaker went out and we just haven't got around to fixing it. Mm -hmm. Which is a completely understandable situation when we're moving portables from point A to point B um, throughout the year and in between years. And, and it, things get in the way of money, maybe <laughs> right. you know, there may not be yeah. funding within plant facilities levy yeah. to deal with something like yeah. that. Yeah, and, and the, there are certainly elements that are associated with all of that, but so many times that the effectiveness of that response turns on those small pivot points. Um, one of the things is like just being able to have effective signage within a school. The, that wayfinding component, you know, when 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 emergency responding officers come into a school and they've received a 911 call from Mrs. Johnson's class in room 319, do they have the ability to figure out where that is rapidly? You know, those kinds of things. Um, and that's a big element of why that vulnerability assessment uh, is so important. We do that triennial vulnerability assessment and that's been one of the linchpins for our office all along is to be able to understand Go what's to every the, school on a three-year cycle and yeah. look for what's working or what right. needs to be yeah. shored up. And, and that's, that's really, I think, the strength of the program. If you were to ask kind of the element that I believe is most effective within our, within our program, it's that element. It's being able to go into a school as a third party and I don't need to understand the whole story of why this door remains locked at all times and this one has to remain open. What I can go in and do is say, I found an open door on the back side of your, uh, on the back side of your school. Let's talk about, is that necessary to remain open? Um, and, and it may be something that necessarily flows under the radar of the school board. It may be something that that principal is aware of but hasn't been able to escalate that in terms of levels of concern. Um, like I say, the, these events turn on small pivots, and so the ability to be able to proactively notify your entire school population, um, things like mass notification to get clear information out to parents in the event of an emergency, even things like uh, providing training all the way out to the end of the row. I mean, Idaho's an agricultural state, so everybody understands that metaphor. I need to make sure that 
the substitute who was hired on two weeks ago also knows how to do a lockdown, not just the 30-year-old veteran teacher. So those, those elements become really important um, in terms of the operational. As you move past the physicality of the building, that's a big portion of that vulnerability assessment. But there's also the operational, the policy and procedural components. Um, and then there's a strong element of climate and culture within there, too, which is what we were talking about earlier. You know, do students feel as though if they have concerns about one of their friends, they know who they can take that concern to? Are there, do they view the adults in that school as being trusted adults that could get them help when they needed it? And, and those are things that really help to paint the picture uh, that's beyond the bricks and mortar and really provides the folks who have the ability to pull the levers and, and make changes, whether it's fiscal, whether it's physical, whether it's programmatic, um, they have the ability to, to do that. And that's been one of the things that's been really nice is as we're able to identify those areas of vulnerability, what we've seen by and large is that schools are able to at least make a plan for dealing with those things. So we're at this, it feels like an inflection point in the national debate about school safety. But we're also at the start of this summer vacation <laughs> and parents and teachers are away from the buildings for a few weeks, kids are away from the buildings for a few weeks. It's a lot of time for people to process and wonder and worry. Mm -hmm. What's your message to, to parents? What's your message to teachers uh, when the time comes to go back in August, September? Yeah, that's a great question because I have it on reliable authority. We'll probably have school again next year. I mean, that yeah, seems um, to be the expectation. Right. You're not breaking news. Right? You're school in August and September. So, but what I would say is as we're kind of moving through this process, this there is certainly an opportune time for decompression. That's what mm -hmm. summer's for. Let's, let's not kid ourselves. But as we're getting ready to go about the business of school again, understanding that we, we need to be doing the small things well. I think that's going to be one of the things that we see. I'm not a prophet by any means, but what we will see coming out of um, the Uvalde situation and, and several other recent active shootings is that People know what to do, you know, they, and by and large, the policies and the procedures are strong. It's the fidelity component that we need to be really looking towards. And so what I would say to teachers and administrators, and um, we'll hold on to parents for just a moment because their role is a little bit different. But what I would say to teachers and administrators is make sure we have the ability to do the things that we say we're going to do. Um, and sometimes having been someone who's written a lot of emergency operations plans that bear no reality to the ability to carry them out, those are not good plans. So if we have a, a rule that all of our exterior doors will remain locked at all times, then we need to be doing that. Right. You know, if, if our expectation, expected standard of care is that we're providing adequate uh, supervision for students before school, then we're actually staffing at an appropriate level to be able to do that. Be sticklers to the right. to, to the protocols. Right. We 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 know what works. I think at the end of the day, and and I'm not by any means putting forward that there's a, a perfect solution that will guarantee, um, you know, the, the prevention of these kinds of situations. But we know those strategies that work. Access control is going to be an area of emphasis to be able to control who comes and goes into your building. But that's nothing new. Again, right. not breaking news that we want to be able to control who comes in and out of schools. What that flows through then is a lot of planning over the course of the summer for school boards, for facilities folks of being able to say, how do we actually 
have a school that's both secure and operational. And accessible. Right. That's, that's the, the balancing of competing interests that we see a lot of times is um, if you have a school that's, for example, a multi-building campus and you have all of your doors locked all throughout the day, you'd better have a plan for passing period. Right. And, and if you want schools to be the community hub that they are in so many villages mm-hmm. and so many towns, you don't want it to be a fortress. So right. you have to... There, there's Walk a, a fine well, and, and it's it's I would say it's a balancing point because that is the expectation in many of our communities. I mean, we're a local governance state, so those school board members are elected by their community. And if if as you hear sometimes in national uh, experts calling for, well, let's lock all these facilities down, let's turn them into Fort Knox. Well, in Pine, how's that going to work then for the community center to shut down? You know, those, those kinds of things that, that we just don't really have the ability or, or desire to do if we're going to have schools that are modeled on a community center mindset. But that's not to say that nothing can be done. Right. So I think those are the areas where we really put, um, look for effective process. Like I say, access control, visitor management is going to be a big one. And, and if you were to ask me 10 years ago, would we see schools in Idaho that have controlled access vestibules? I would say there's no way in the world that that would happen. Um, but I've been wrong a lot, and that's been one of the cases. Yeah, there are a lot of school districts where their community has said, we're willing to put up with the inconvenience for dropping off the forgotten lunch or for picking up the student for the orthodontist um, because we want to have this higher level of safety. And, and those are, are things that we're starting to see. We're starting to see mass communication really, I think, come into its own um, as an effective emergency operations tool. Um, again, so many of our older levels of plans re- relied on kind of this top-down command-directed architecture of, of where I, as the principal, say, student, you go do thus and so, and then the expectation was that you go and do it. Well, those were all based on kind of the 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 operational realities of not having solid communication on a point-to-point basis. The ability for students after an evacuation to say, students, call mom and dad, let them know you're okay, yeah. and let them know where you are. Right. Here's how we reunite. Here's how we exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, those are things I think that it's always important for us to review our standard security protocols within schools. It's important to review those emergency operations plans with an eye towards what does our community actually expect of us when it comes to school safety and security. Because at the end of the day, everything we do needs to be sustainable. And if it's if it's a action that we take that's not supported by our local communities, it's not going to be sustainable. We could very easily lock every door, close every window, you know, brick up every opening in a school. Um, but there's not a lot of communities that are willing to do that because of the trade-offs on the other side. And, and before we go, parents, their vantage point is different, their role is different. What's your message yeah, to them? Thank you, because that, that's really uh, a, an important thing to think through. Parents play a really important part when it comes to how do we talk about safety within schools. How do we respond in the event of an emergency? Um, so I, for, let's start with how can they talk with their students about safety within schools. The first thing I would say is students need to hear from their parents that schools are a safe place to be. 
that's a really important component. And especially from what I'm hearing from folks who are out in the field, there's just a high level of anxiety because of the high level of media coverage right now. Students need that sense of safety. Students also need those tools to be able to have communications pathways. If they see something that's not right, how do they communicate that? How do they get that information out of their backpack into the hands of somebody who can deal with that in, that information and probably mitigate that situation while it's at a, a very low level? So that's one of the reasons I always want to be able to put that in the back of the mind of parents is to ask questions like, if you are concerned about one of your friends, something that they're doing that might be dangerous, who would you talk to about mm -hmm. that? And, and understand that it may not be you as a parent, but understand who those allies are within the school, if it's a trusted teacher, if it's a coach, if it's, understand that those are folks that are within that trust network for that student. And- Understand, you will be asking that child to do something really difficult. It, you will be. Whoever they're going to. Yeah, and, and understand that, that that component of it, that it is not snitching, it's not you know, not telling on your, your friends. Right. It's, it's a true demonstration of care and concern for your friends, and that's what we need to be about. That's what we're interested in, is making sure that everybody has the ability to go to school safely. And part of that is a responsibility of students to, to let caring adults know what they know. One of the things that is absolutely heartbreaking, when you look as often as we do at school violence-related case studies and things like that is, oftentimes students knew something was amiss and they just didn't have the tools or didn't sense the urgency or didn't kind of understand the severity of what they were seeing. No fault to them, but I think we can do better in our conversations with students to help them understand, here are some signs of a person who's in crisis. Let me know. You know, let me know if, if your student's talking to you, you're a trusted adult for them and you have the ability to help get that information to the people who have the ability to pull the levers and intervene in that situation. And that's got to be our goal. Going back to kind of that community level model, it's not our expectation that any one party has the ability to solve this, but it will not be solved if we aren't able to communicate information relating to students in crisis prior to the event. It, it just won't happen. And, and that's what I would say is probably the strongest emphasis for parents is to be able to keep those communication lanes open and understand that when your student's talking to you and they're telling you a concern, take those concerns to the school or if appropriate, take them to law enforcement. Um, you know, those are really important things to prevent um, and mitigate these kind of large scale disasters that we're seeing. A lot to take to heart here. Mike, thank you for taking the time to talk to us about this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Again, that was Mike Munger, the manager of Idaho's School Safety and Security Program. The program has launched a new tip line called CTEL Now. This is designed to allow students to report unusual activity either by phone, online, or through a smartphone app and it allows schools to sign up for the tip line. You can find out more about that at ctelnow.org. That'll wrap it up for the podcast this week. Uh, it's summer, but we still have news going on in education policy and education politics, so quite a bit you can catch up on at idoednews.org. I have a story that I wrote on Thursday about the state's teacher shortage. In spite of all the money that went into raises and employee benefits, 
A lot of schools are struggling to find teachers, struggling to find qualified applicants for vacancies. It's going to be a long, nervous summer for a lot of school administrators. I explain why and look at the prospects for the fall. Devin Bodkin has a look at superintendent shakeups across the state. There have been quite a few uh, comings and goings in the superintendent's ranks. He catches up on the uh, activity there. Uh, we have the latest on the Nampa School Board, which revisited its controversial decision to ban 22 books earlier this spring. We have the latest on that. You can find that at idahoednews.org. Follow us on Twitter at Idaho Ed News. We tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on any breaking news items. You can follow us on Facebook and join the conversation and comment on our stories there. And check back here next Friday for another edition of the podcast. I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week.